This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got another great guest for you, colleague of mine, lawyer, businessman. Got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about today. Please help me welcome my guest, Doug Rainey. Doug, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. You got it. Well, Obviously, I know you well, uh, better than most of my guests, but uh, some of our audience probably doesn't. So maybe give us a little bit of your background. You've got an interesting background from from school to your first couple jobs to practicing law. So share that with us. Yeah, so um, I graduated law school back in 2010 and uh, had some unique opportunities out of law school and ended up spending a lot of my career as a uh, general partner and uh, managing member of a real estate development, been involved in oil and gas. So i uh, certainly seen my share contracts uh, from the, you know, client side, um, as opposed to the uh, attorney side, and have been with the firm for, um, you know, almost two years now. So, um, you know, tend to take a probably more business-oriented approach than uh, most attorneys. Sure, and then you also, you're a finance math guy, too. Tell them what you did before uh, development. Uh, I played uh, poker as my main source of income. Uh, uh, during law school and uh, kind of the first uh, few years after it, before there was some uh, significant legal changes to online poker that got me out of that shortly after I graduated law school. Yeah, well, I think it's always interesting because what you do a good job of is assessing risk and probability. Because you could tell you're, and you use poker terms that I used to play poker, not the same level, but it's like we can speak the same language, but I know our clients appreciate it. But like, well, there's a 5% chance this could happen, but the result, the downside result is catastrophic. So you got to really weigh that in versus, versus yeah, it's 50-50, yeah. you could do this, but if you've only got a 1% upside, then it's not as it's not worth it. Yeah, without getting too into the weeds on this, I I, I think the biggest takeaway from my experience kind of a, as an advantage gambler, as they call it, is kind of you know weighing probability with the impact of that probability. And that's a term uh, gamblers like to call expected value. You know, I mean, if, if someone's offers you, you know, $100,000 or, you know, a 10% chance of a million dollars, you know, your expected value is the same. But for most people, you know, because of the risk tolerance, they'd much rather have the guaranteed $100,000. You know, well, well, let's say you have, a, you know, $100,000 or a 10% chance of $1.1 million. Well, then might be different depending on, you know, each person's risk tolerance. So I think it's kind of important to you know, call that out to the client as much as possible, like what the situation is, and not make any assumptions about the client's risk tolerance. So it's really more about, you know, helping clients help themselves more than just telling them this is what you ought to do. No, I think that's proved as you look at documents, you look at deals, you know, assessing those things in the EV. Maybe you give that, I didn't prompt you with this, so, but I'm sure you remember it. You've, you've used the example a few times about the 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 jar of white marbles and black marbles um, and mm. pulling one out at random. Can you give that example? I think that's helpful for a lot of our clients to really assess like, oh yeah, I didn't think about it the same way. And really, it really, it focuses on like the stakes at, at play at times. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, a lot of times, you know, lawyers are looking out for themselves more than their client. Um, you know, I always advise anyone to consider the agency costs. You know, what, what are the real incentives of the person who's supposed to be looking out for your interest as opposed to your actual interest? You know, and one thing the lawyers are kind of notorious for 
is being overly cautious and they have no problem encouraging you to spend thousands of dollars in legal fees, you know, to avoid a situation that's really a one in a million chance of happening. But, you know, the, the attorney, um, if anything profits from you spending that additional money, they don't care. Um, if anything, they're happy to see you waste money because they make more, you know, billing hours. And, uh, you know, they're not really upfront about the fact this is a, it's a risk, but it's a pretty small one. Um, so, you know, the example you gave about the jar is, you know, let's say there's a hundred, you know, ping pong balls in a jar and maybe, you know, 30 of them are red and 70 of them are black. You know, like, let's say you lose, you know, I don't know, $50,000 in litigation costs if the red ball is pulled. Well, you know, I mean, 30% is pretty severe. So it's probably worth spending a few hundred bucks to pull one of the black balls. If, you know, you have a, a million balls in the jar and there's like three of them that are red, you know, it's probably worth rolling the dice a little bit, you know. So, you know, again, I, I always try to make the client aware of the worst case scenario, but I think it's also in the client's best interest to, to be upfront about how real do you really think that risk is. So you're not encouraging the client to spend, you know, $1,000 or even $500 addressing a problem that's, uh, you know, two or three red balls out of a million chance of, you know, actually being a problem for them. Yeah, good point. I know one thing that my clients really appreciate with me is because I have a business sense in particular MH operations is I'll tell them like, here's what I would do. You know, like I'm your lawyer. Here's the worst case scenario. Here's all the options, but here's what I would do. And it's easy when I don't have a financial incentive. I'm like, look, here's what I would do. I would buy a phase one environmental with every single mobile home park you purchase. And like, and you know, I'm unbiased here because I don't sell phase one environmental. So I'm not getting any money from that. I can even give you referrals. I'm not getting any kickbacks from any fees. I'm just telling you, this is what I would do. This is good risk mitigation. But also, I wouldn't do it the day I went under contract. I would first do other free stuff, you know, run a run a financial model, talk to investors, talk to the bank, look at the market stats, things like that. So there's a there's a hierarchy, but also a linear priority of diligence items. And some of them are free. Some of them take time, which is not free. And some of them you have to pay a third-party vendor like a surveyor, which is not an inexpensive cost. So... Uh, definitely important to kind of weigh the pros and cons of kind of a cost benefit analysis at all times. So I've got several other episodes on contracts and, you know, PSAs in particular and key provisions, but a lot of times we get a contract that has already been signed or already been wholesaled or assigned to our client that we had no influence on. And then sometimes we have contracts that we did negotiate, but still something comes up where you need a contract amendment. So that's going to be a key focus for today. So maybe tell us for the lay people out here, what is a contract amendment and, and why is it necessary? And then we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, uh, before we kind of have a discussion about it, I'll go ahead and start just by reading the you know, definition. Um, a contract amendment, also known as an addendum, is a document used to modify, add, or delete terms and conditions from an existing contract without entirely rewriting the original agreement. It serves as a formal and legal way to make changes to the contract if after it has been executed by all parties involved. That's just basically another way of saying, you know, you have an existing agreement, something changes, something, you learn something that you didn't know at the time you signed the contract that makes you want to change the terms of agreement. You know, and there's quite a bit of reasons why that we'll get into, uh, why you might want an amendment, but that's the gist of what an amendment is. Now, does these have to be written or can I have a verbal amendment? Uh, always we recommend a written amendment. And, and, and in fact, you know, that's kind of something, especially with friends and family you see as you know people try to keep things informal there will be a bunch of email strings that you know people kind of point to i'm um, even worse than the email strings just a verbal communication it's like okay you know we've seen the agreement but oh well we got to address this we'll just kind of both agree that this really means that well 
you know, ultimately, if you ever actually have to enforce this agreement, either in court or with an arbitrator, or even a mediator, it's by far the cleanest to everybody just to have a formal amendment that just memorializes exactly what that agreement is. So there's no dispute down the road. And, and the reason I bring up friends and family is that's, I think, the most common mistake I'll see people make is they think, oh, we're friends. We don't need to be that formal. In my view, it's especially important, not less important, to be formal about agreements with friends and family, because not only do you risk the business relationship, you risk your personal relationship, and, and that happens all the time. You know, it's right. kind of part of that reason for some people don't recommend even doing business with friends and family, but it happens. And if, if you're going to do that, everyone can be happy with each other, so on the same page, just put all that in writing. No, agreed. I mean, I think I, I sometimes will say, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Because yep. even if two people, if you and I are trying to do a handshake deal and we're both honest, good guys, our memories might be different. And I got a pretty good memory, but my notes are better than anybody's memory because I don't lose them. They're written down. And a contract amendment in writing is is crucial. And then just, you know, underlying documents should be in writing also. You know, I think, you know, in law school, they teach us the statute of fraud, which is basically any any real estate transaction or any personal property transaction above a certain threshold. I think it was 5,000 last I looked at it. Then that must be in writing in order to be enforceable. So just it makes sense to have in writing. Email doesn't count. I mean, in theory, you can amend agreements via email, but it's better just to have a simple contract. Maybe it's only two sentences or, you know, there's generally a whereas clause. And then the here's the parties, here's the date. Whereas now, therefore, and then you have some boilerplate of like, they can be executed in counterparts, you know, facsimile or scan copies acceptable, Excuse me, but generally having the bullets in there in a written document. And then I like to have the, the title of the amendment reflect the title of the underlying document. So for example, I'll see somebody say purchase contract, and then later they'll amend it and they'll say amendment to contract. And then later they'll say addendum to uh, purchase agreement. And it's like, okay, well, it's better to say if the real document says purchase and sale contract, and then the amendment should say first amendment to purchase and sale contract. The next one should say second amendment to purchase and sale contract. Um, one of the first assignments I got from one of our biggest clients was they had like 23 extensions and amendments and addenda. And they're like, will you just follow these through and make sure that the current understanding is valid? And I gave it to one of my associates and they're like, no, no. We want, we don't mind paying for each of you to do it. We, normally they don't want to, who wants to pay double. And they're like, we want you both to do it. And I got done with it. It was only like 20 minutes. And I look at the associate and I was like, it's pretty clear to me that this is what it is and what it isn't. He's like, agreed. But our client was with so many of poorly drafted different forms. And there was a wholesale in there and another wholesale and a termination and a report, you know, that it became clear as mud. So having it uh, crystal clear is obviously more helpful. And I think it's uh, equally important to date each of those, you know, have as many reference dates as possible. In some cases, you even say, you know, the September 13th, 2023, you know, contract for the purchase and sale of real estate amended by the October 21st, you know, and the more information you can provide that gives context to a third party, again, either judge you know, mediator, and, and even amongst yourselves, you know, as, as the parties to the contracts, the more clear you can be kind of telling the story about what's the timeline for each of these changes, the easier life is going to be for you, you know, if you ever need to resolve a dispute down the road. Yeah, good point. So let's segue into, you know, some of the reasons why you need an amendment. So you mentioned, you know, clear and having that detail, and obviously that's the way we do it here at our firm, but um, vagueness 
is a is often a problem. So explain, give us an example of when something's vague and why that requires an amendment. Yeah. So I mean, a, a lot of it might just be there's a you know disagreement on how to interpret things, and 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 even I mean, this isn't an example, but but just in general, it happens to the best of us. I mean, you can have as good of a contract as you can you know want to have, put as much time into it as you can, and ultimately there's something you didn't think of like there's two different ways to interpret this and you know even supreme court justices disagree on how to interpret certain things so you know you can only do so much to to cure a disagreement but you know well do you have something about well does the sale include xyz or does it just include x and y you know maybe there's some disagreement on whether it's implied that z is included as well or not well this the buyer might say it is and the seller might say it isn't well, you might have an amendment that is a compromise. You'll say, okay, well, not include Z, but I want a reduction in the purchase price. You know, I, I thought I was getting that when I agreed to a million dollars. If I'm not getting Z, it should only be 950,000. And, and then maybe seller counters, no, I'm not gonna knock off 50,000, I'll knock off 25. Okay, great. And so then you just have an amendment that clearly says, both parties agree, you know, whereas X, Y, and Z kind of outline the basic facts, the recitals, the, the substantive now there are four clause will say the purchase price is hereby reduced to $975,000. The parties further agree that Z, whatever Z might be in the context of the purchase agreement is not included, you know, with the sale. Um, this to me is a good time to mention a more general principle that, you know, especially if you're the buyer, most of our clients, not all, but most of our clients tend to be buyers of um, you know, mobile home parks, if, if you're the buyer in, in a contract here, the sooner you can flesh out any sort of disagreement like this, the better. Particularly, you want to make sure you have this discussion before the end of your inspection period. Just because once your inspection period ends, typically whatever earnest money is in escrow becomes non-refundable to you, um, with the exception of some very limited circumstances like, you know, seller's breach of contract and, and so forth. If you have this discussion about, okay, is Z included in the sale? And if not, how much money am I going to get off um, of the purchase price? You have a lot more leverage to negotiate a favorable amendment, which is really a form of settlement of a dispute. It's a much cheaper form of settlement right. than going to a mediator, going to arbitrator. It's kind of an informal discussion. Maybe your attorneys involved, you know, are involved in that discussion, but ultimately you're Kind of heading this off the pass and getting ahead of the disputes before it becomes a lot more expensive your leverage to negotiate a good outcome is much much higher before the end of that inspection period because if the seller isn't willing to play ball if they're not being reasonable or even if they are being reasonable you just can't see eye to eye no no problem you just terminate the contract get your earnest money back you're out whatever you know due diligence costs legal costs anything along those lines you've spent but otherwise you're unscathed if you wait until after the inspection period or even worse until after closing to have a discussion like this then well now all of a sudden you're out either your earnest money or even worse the entire purchase price at closing then you're trying to kind of negotiate a resolution to this dispute with one hand tied behind your back yeah i mean good points there i mean yeah just vagueness in general can lead to lead to disagreements or just a lack of agreement on the interpretation. So I think anytime there's a lack of specificity, we should look into it. Anytime there's um, 
a gray area. Like I had one where I was doing an eviction one time because I, I had to do it myself because our local attorney was conflicted out. So I had to go to mid-Missouri and do this eviction. And the way that I read the statute was you had to serve it uh, 10 days before the hearing. Well, I did. I showed up and the judge said, you didn't give proper service. I said, no, here it is. And he said, well, that was only nine days before the hearing. I said, no, it's it's the 15th. We did it on the 5th. Then was 10. And he goes, no, no, no. It's on or above 10 days, meaning before 10 days before the 10th day. So he goes, you had to serve it on the 4th for the hearing on the 15th. I was like, well, that's not how I read it. He said, well, that's how I read it. And I'm the judge. So we had a disagreement in interpretation. Obviously, he had much more leverage over me, so he won. So I had to go reserve, get kicked down the road two more weeks, right? So sometimes you see that, and then you see with personal property, we had, you know, sometimes you'll say, like, all the personal property used on the property is included with the purchase price. Well, what is that? I had a deal right now where the guy said, I keep a 2020 Chevy Silverado in the shed sometimes, but that doesn't count. Okay, that's specificity. Well, now we, we have that additional legal provision that helps us better evaluate the financial merits of the deal. Like, oh, if I don't get the truck, and this case is a $40 million transaction. Like, we don't need the truck. We weren't even counting on the truck, but this guy wanted the specificity. So ideally, you get a, you get a list of all the you know key property. Maybe you don't say like, you know, 37 nails, but if you're going to have, you know, a sledgehammer, maybe you have, you write one sledgehammer, maybe you put DeWalt sledgehammer, whatever the brand is, things like that. So specificity there is key. And then subjectivity and discretion. So tell me, give me an example of one you've worked on where you see the first draft and it's got dis, you know discretion of the opposing party and how that can cause problems. Yeah. So th this might be a different answer than what you're asking. And, um, but it does bring up the point where, you know, a lot of agreements will call for a future agreement. You know, they'll kind of say for, you know, allocation is a really common one. You know, either allocating a purchase price among multiple properties or even among one property or multiple properties, allocation of purchase price to, you know, land versus non-land assets, which can have, you know, significant tax implications in the case of multiple properties. It can have implications to different limited partners. You know, sometimes sellers are selling a portfolio of, of properties where they're, you know, the managing partner of each of them, but the limited partners are different. So therefore, you know, the breakdown of the allocation matters a lot to the seller. You know, in, in the case of land versus not land, it tends to matter more to the buyer than the seller, but but that can vary too. And you'll a lot of times for some of these relatively minor issues, you'll see the parties try to have in their agreements you know, buyer and seller will agree to an allocation prior to closing. Okay, well, it doesn't really call for what happens if- Right, what if we don't? To reach an agreement, right? And so I always tell clients, never agree to reach a future agreement. If you do, you need to very clearly spell out what happens if you fail to agree. And that way there's lots of different options, but you don't want the seller to be able to say, well, we can't agree, you know, therefore the contract's terminated. Well, wait a minute. No, I mean, right. it, it just, it, it's a prime opportunity for ambiguity to pop up. And anytime ambiguity pops up, the risk of the dispute increases. Yeah, no, that's an, that's an example of one where you're, because there's a future agreement with unknown variables, you've empowered the other party with more future leverage because there's some level of their discretion there. So I try to tie it down, not even like reasonable effort or commercial reasonable, or I try to say best faith. On things that, on there, if there are things that you don't know for certain, um, I just recently executed a PSA uh, for a client did last week, 
And um, we don't know if we can get a loan commitment. So we put in there that we will in, endeavor to get a preliminary loan commitment. But if we don't, then you know we're, we're not in default. And we will agree to using commercially reasonable efforts. Obviously, we're going to be trying like heck to get a loan commitment. This is a very complicated, you know, tough deal. Well, seller's attorney put in there that, uh, and the earnest money is 100K on this, so a sizable amount. They put in there that um, if the if the preliminary loan commitment is uh, not satisfactory to the seller, then the seller can at that time terminate the deal and keep the $100,000 earnest money. I'm like, no way. And so I got back and I said, look, it's, this is on day 120, of the, which is the last day of IP. I said, if by day 120, if we have a preliminary loan commitment and we proceed past day 120, you should by rule be satisfied because that shows that we are endeavoring to close and we, and we, we clearly have, have faith in it. We can't get a binding loan commitment until like right before closing, typically three days before closing or maybe even at closing by proof of this bank funding the deal. But if I said, if we get to day 119 and we do not yet have a preliminary loan commitment, we're going to have really low probability of getting one and then we're going to terminate the deal. But we can't let you then decide. And this is the case where the seller doesn't really want to sell, but is being forced to due to some court order. It's like, we don't want to get the seller a chance for outs, especially when it's going to cost us 100K. So I see that sometimes where the seller has this discretion, like, or not just seller, buyer, you want to really limit the other party's subject to discretion. Yeah. And you'll see it a lot with title review. You know, generally your, your contracts kind of discuss title objections and the like. And occasionally you'll see sellers ask for termination rights you know right. where if, if buyer objects to title seller has the option to either cure the title or terminate the contract and that's where we have to sit and say no it's the other way around if, if seller can't cure it then buyer has the option of continuing with the transaction and the you know title that sellers willing and able to convey or buyer has the option to terminate the contract you know you don't want to give you know just because you say well wait a minute we, we don't quite like how that's this you know exception 32 is written in a in a title commitment, you don't want seller to be able to terminate the contract and go ahead and sell to the buyer that showed up two weeks after you signed it up and you know accept an offer that's twenty five thousand dollars more than you did after you've already spent you know tens of thousands of dollars in due diligence costs. Exactly. So that's more um, regular contract provisions as to you know how to how to how to button them up. We see when we get wholesale contracts, they're often really brief and really uh, unprofessional, and we got to we got to decide. Dear client, we think you need to amend this contract, but we can't put the whole kitchen sink in because of the nature of this. So we have to decide what we really care about, how we're going to put it in there and why we're going to put it in there. So tell me, what are some of the reasons why we need, typically need a contract amendment? So, you know, a, a big one is timeline, you know, because, you know, you'll, you'll see a 45, 60 day, you know, inspection period. Well, maybe there's, 10 days, five days, whatever left in the inspection period. And there's still some pretty major outstanding issues that you got to figure out. Well, then the buyer needs to go to the seller and say, look, we're still interested in this property, but we're certainly not willing to commit to our, you know, $200,000 of earnest money become non-refundable. So we're going to need some more time. Well, the seller says, well, why should I give you more time? It's because, well, if you don't, you're leaving me no choice but to terminate the contract. Because again, I'm certainly not going to let $200,000 become non-refundable when I don't know whether I can commit or not. You've got to let me investigate this phase one, investigate, you know, some zoning problems. If the city indicated there's a chance that you're not even legally operating this park, you know, all sorts of issues like that. And more often than not, as long as the seller 
you know, kind of understands where you're coming from and you present a reasonable case that, look, I'm, I've already spent a lot of money on this. I'm pursuing it in good faith. I just need some more time before I can commit my earnest money to this. More often than not, they're willing to do it, but that's where it's really a really formal amendment. And you certainly don't want to be having that discussion after the inspection period's already ended. You know, you don't want to wait till five days after the inspection period, you know, due diligence period, feasibility period, lots of okay. different names, the same thing. And then say, hey, you know, we need, need more time to figure this out. There's a chance that seller's going to be nice and give it to you. But more often than not, the seller is going to realize that they have all the leverage at that point and say, no, you had yeah. 45 days, you had 30 days, whatever, to figure this out. You didn't. You let that deadline go by. Now contractually, your earnest money's hard. You know, too bad. And either buy it or don't. I'm, I'm happy to keep your 200 grand if you want to terminate <laughs> now. So to, so to avoid that, and it, it happens more than you know, you'd think. Oh, yeah. Um, so... And watching the dates, watching the dates. how your listeners would think, at least. Yeah, watch, um, watch, watch, and watching the dates is key. So we we track them all the time for our clients. But a lot of we've got you know small clients, we've got giant clients that do an equally poor job of monitoring these dates. So watching them yeah. is key. And then a business tip here is: if you're gonna need an extension, don't wait until the last day to bring it up. That drives yeah. every, it creates stress for everybody, and it, it really pisses off the opposing party. So communicate. And another business tip is like when I'm under diligence on a deal and during my inspection period, I'm regularly updating the opposing party. Like, hey, just so you know, got my phase one order. Just so you know, I got a, a survey order. You may see some surveyors out there. Just give them a heads up. Hey, I'm scheduling a site visit. Hey, we got loan approval. And that way we're communicating. And then that way, if I do need more time, they're like, well... Bird's been working on it. He's been spending money, spending time. Then I can get a free extension because sometimes I had a deal where I was the seller and the guy wasn't working on it. And I know because he, in order to have a PCA, property condition assessment, in order to have an appraisal, in order to have a phase one, in order to have a survey, typically they they would send somebody on site that my manager would notice and or they would need me to fill out some questionnaires, especially the PCA. I'm like, I haven't heard from you. I haven't heard from an appraiser. So I know you're not working on it. Well, then they come at the last minute and say, hey, um, we need more time. I'm like, okay, well, that time is going to cost you. So now I need that earnest money. I need you to put up more earnest money and it needs to be non-refundable. And if you're not willing to do that, well, then that shows me you're not really serious on the deal. So then just drop the deal. I'll move on. Well, now I have leverage over them because they didn't communicate and or they waited to the last minute. And I had one guy, this group, they were, we were Christian. So we take off Christmas day. This group was, I knew they were not Christian. They waited until Friday at 530 on the 23rd of December. This is in 21 or 22, 22, to then come back with a massive uh, extension request and retrade that was going to potentially kick us into the next year. And I'm like, I had to get the meeting together with my partners on Saturday morning, the 24th, to see if, we, and we had to close on um, the 27th to, to then see if we can give them more time or not. And it's like, I really pissed me off. And now I got to go tell my family, hey, I'm sorry, I have to work on this over the weekend. Or, you know, there's $250,000 earnest money up. So so it really made me a little more un, uh, unfriendly in the negotiation. Like, you guys, did, you didn't find out till 5.20 p.m. that you weren't going to have the, your, you know, bank approval three days from now? Not buying it, right? So just that the lack of communication really hurt them because I was what much less willing to be collaborative. And I just told them, no, call on your bluff. And they never even responded. They were just jerks. And then on, you know, Monday, which was a Christmas a holiday, they said, because um, it was Monday the 26th, a bank holiday, they said, we're ready to close. If Ferd's not, then he's in default. And I'm like, I am ready to close. All I got to do is sign the closing statement, which 
is for tomorrow, Tuesday the 27th. But just that that level of lack of communication really hurt their odds there. So just a more of a business tip than a legal tip. Yep, absolutely. And you know, along those same lines, I always, you know, some attorneys will disagree on this. Um, but my personal take is the more communication, the better. I mean, there, there's certainly the legal strategy of trying to play a gotcha and, you know, waiting until some deadline passes and saying, oh, look, this is what the contract says. In, in general, to me, disputes are so expensive that more often than not, it's not worth going that route. And, and you're better to three, four weeks in advance say, hey, just to be clear, we received deliverables on you know, X date, I believe that the inspection period ends at 5 p.m. local time on this date. Are we on the same page there? And occasionally you'll say, no, I thought it would be this. And, you know, you can usually work it out. It's like a day or I've never seen a huge dispute when they have that you know conversation. Right. Early, yeah, when it's early on, it's like, look, it's yeah. either 39 days from now or 40 days from now. But, yeah, getting rid of that specific that, that vagueness and creating a, a mutual agreement. That's that's a good point, especially on one where there's a floating timeline. Sometimes it's easy. Yeah. You know, the inspection period ends on the 10th of February. Okay, that's easy. But if it ends 30 days from receipt of the last deliverable, but what if you get the deliverable list, but like it was a little unclear, you know, if everything was technically compliant. And and that's, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and just, you know, really figuring out what the dates are. And then another reason I see for us to change to change dates or change contractual terms is on the pun receipt of new information. You know, I thought I was going to get 22 mobile homes with this purchase, but upon inspection and your records, you only have title to 19 and three are abandoned. That's that's a misrepresentation, perhaps accidentally or ignorantly, but that's a material change of the assets. So I'm going to bring it up that I would like to modify the agreement to say I only get 19, but I get, you know, a, a quick claim or a bill of sale on the other three. But because you don't have good title, I also need a price concession and, you know, retrading price. I have a whole other episode on that. That's how to, how to do that. But that's that's another uh, reason for a contract amendment, you know, is, is modification of price or modification of you know, the property to be transferred. And, and even more so than timelines, that is something you don't want to drop on their door, you know, at three o'clock on the last day of IP, because I've seen guys, we I've seen that where we do it two days in advance. And then the guy doesn't respond. You yeah. check in the next day. The guy doesn't respond. And I know what's happening. He's hoping we let the next that five o'clock. We try to reach him. If we don't, we make sure to get the notice out before five o'clock. If that's the, what the contract says, and if the contract says by email, by the way, and not by the mail delivery, you know, by email, return receipt requested, delivery receipt, read receipt. And that says, dear Doug, I haven't heard from you in two days. Please consider this notice of termination of the contract. If you'd like to reinstate the contract in uh, conjunction with the amendment I proposed, open to that discussion. And but that but I see guys all the time mess up on that kind of stuff, and it's super stressful for us because we know the ramifications. And it's the clients sometimes are like, "No, he's good to go." We were talking about one this morning. The guy's been out of contract for six weeks. Oh, don't worry about it. Seller's still working with me. Like he is and. Till you get until he gets a better offer. Yeah. And one uh, kind of a addition I'd throw out there is uh, first of all, I completely agree with you. And this happens all the time is that, you know, you have, you know, 24 hours left in the inspection period and you're still, you know, come to negotiations about an amendment. You don't want to leave a dispute about whether there's an agreement. So, I mean, 
sellers will do that and, and buyers no need to panic you just calmly terminate and say you know we're happy to reinstate buy in a simple amendment but you, you want to protect your earnest money first and foremost but the caveat to that i would say is if, if you're a seller of a park i i don't think it's necessary i mean sellers do this all the time and i don't think it's necessarily best practice for sellers to go dark in the middle of negotiations with the deadline approaching just because it's also a recipe for a dispute you know because you know even as a buyer's attorney we would say best practice be very careful about these deadlines or on the side of caution and make sure you terminate before there's any argument whatsoever that your earnest money is not refundable however if you're the seller that doesn't mean that it's best practice just to disappear on a buyer as a deadline's approaching just because you don't want the buyer to turn around and say no look at this email chain xyz we had an agreement in principle then the buyer's mad at you if you're trying to sell your park the, the buyer might think you know this guy's operating in bad faith i don't want to buy from him anymore now all of a sudden instead of you know getting a purchase price that you're originally happy enough with to sign the contract now all of a sudden you're paying potentially tens of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees you know to fight a pretty expensive legal battle over was there an agreement to extend the you know, inspection period or not so in general i almost always recommend to clients just communicate if this is your interpretation of something be upfront about it it, it not only is it legal best practice, it's best business practice. You'll get a better reputation and people are going to want to do repeat business with you, you know, say good things about you to other people. Yeah, good point. And I think another thing that I thought of when you were talking there was were things that we didn't know was uh, going to be relevant that is now relevant. Like sometimes the client will not tell us that they have a handshake deal with the opposing like the seller that are going to take over the seller's loan. So like we just put in there like we're going to buy the park and then we find out, oh, there's a Fannie Mae loan assumption. OK, well, obviously the parties are going to work together on that, but then they didn't talk about and we didn't know that they were going to do this. They didn't talk about who's going to pay the fee because there's sometimes there's a one percent uh, fee. Our template contract would probably say that, you know, buyer would pay loan fees, but seller would pay any prepayment penalties. Well, what if there's a loan assumption versus a loan payoff? Which is it? And it's and is it and is there a minimum maximum on there's a fee, you know, defeasance fee versus your yield maintenance fee versus um you know, transfer and there's minimums and you know greater greater lands in there. So I think just anytime there's something that you're aware could be um, contentious, like why not figure that out earlier on before you're potentially losing on that provision? Exactly, and I think that speaks to the broader point of never rely on a third party, whether it be a lender, um, you know, a city zoning department, anything like that. Never rely on a third party to perform after your own deadline is passed. Um, we, we keep talking about the inspection period, but, but that's the most common example of that, is if you're identifying a potential issue, well, wait a minute, we're still waiting on the zoning letter, or we're still waiting on Fannie Mae to approve this loan assumption, we're pretty confident it's going to happen. Let's just not worry about it. Well, let's say a week after the inspection period, you learn there's a deal killer. Either like a lender's not going to perform, they're not going to consent to a loan assumption, the city's not going to sign off on your park zoning. Now all of a sudden you have you've got a dispute over your earnest money again. So that that's where it's just important to identify these potential disputes before they happen and address them by amendment. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Doug, we've covered a lot. Anything else come to mind? Last uh, tips or tricks or anything before we go? Uh. I mean, I, th I think the main thing I'd say is, you know, everyone is cost conscious. You know, I mean, I've, I spent four years as a as a client and as an attorney, so I, I'm sympathetic to that. 
<laughs> but to, to me, avoiding getting an attorney involved, again, a lot of people think that when you hire an attorney, you know, you're paying them to write some 30 page agreement that really should be a two page agreement, or, you know, you're immediately going to sue somebody because you hired a lawyer. In, in general, you're going to be dollars ahead by far to bring in an attorney into the loop relatively early on, as soon as you realize there's a potential of a dispute, maybe your attorney's going to realize that it's been a potential dispute in a way that you will not as a, uh, you know, non-attorney and, you know, basically paying for a couple hours of their time can easily save you tens of thousands of dollars in, uh, in costs if you let the, you know, dispute kick it down the road until you know, it becomes a much bigger problem. No, that's a good point. Reminds me of a story I uh, when I hired a consultant, I was a county appraiser in Jackson County, and I hired a consultant. He gave me the story. The guy also coached pool. He was a professional pool player and coach as a hobby. Um, at this point, it was a consulting hobby. And he said, here's what happens with a lot of my pool clients is they'll have this really hard shot. They'll take the shot. They'll make the ball, but it'll roll back around, and then it'll end up getting them in a position where they're behind the eight ball. And they'll call timeout, and they say, Jerry. I need your advice. What do I do? And he says, you should have asked me that one shot ago. At this point, it's too late. You've put yourself in a spot. I can't, I can't give you enough counsel. And that's kind of the same thing. Like, a, you know, an ounce of prevention is better than a you know pound of cure, you know, later. Um, so, you know, obviously it's self-serving a little bit as, as, as lawyers, but it's like, no, we, 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 we got enough to keep us busy. We're not trying to manufacture work. We're trying to avoid disputes because ultimately that's going to help us you know, win more cases and win more matters. And, have better uh, overall client satisfaction and results. So good points, well taken. Uh, Doug, appreciate your time today. For those that want to reach out to Doug, you know, MHP Law Firm, you can find his page on there and his practice areas and reach out to us, uh, get an email going and happy to chat more. Uh, look forward to the next time. Thanks again, Doug. Thank you. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.